0: You high, to think of your holiness, your transcendence, your glory that is high above the heavens, that is above all that you have made, greater than all that you have made. Your holiness that is pure and free from sin and you is light and there is no darkness at all there is no defect there is no weakness there is nothing in you that is not the perfection of beauty in every way and beauties and perfections that we see even dimly here and long to when that day when we'll see them more perfectly in in your presence when we are freed from the presence of sin and can have those eyes that can see you with greater clarity and fullness but lord as we travel along The road that you have laid out for us here, help us to apprehend that more and more, to have our eyes enlightened more and more, to see your glory, to know that for which we have been saved, and to delight in you and to live for you. And use your word, Lord, as you do, to compel us to that end. And we ask you to do these things again by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, we now move on to our next church, the church at Pergamum, as we're looking at the seven churches addressed by the risen Lord, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and we're looking this morning at Pergamum, having finished the church at Smyrna and looked at the church at Ephesus. Let me begin by saying that Christians have often been called a people of the book. And this is a statement that recognizes that Christians are identified primarily and specifically in many ways, but as those who hold to the revelation of their God in a book. That is in Scripture, the 66 books of Scripture. We hold Scripture to be the word of the living God, the living word, God has revealed Himself, He has spoken to us in actual words that were written down on, for us, actual pages of paper. That's changed, of course, throughout the history of time. But however they are written down, they are to us words recorded from God to reveal Himself and to teach us and to lead us to a knowledge of Himself which is centered around the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in anticipation of His coming... The the explanation of His coming, of His work, and of the anticipation of His coming again. Scripture is, as it is applied by the Spirit of God, the very beginning of our salvation. We are brought forth by the word of truth. Scripture reveals to us Christ, and in that revelation of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation. We begin... Our very beginning of our life as a Christian is because of the revelation of Christ in Scripture, in a book. Many of us were saved actually just by reading Scripture or somebody sharing with us Scripture. It is the revelation of Christ. We are sanctified by Scripture and by the Word of God. Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. Every word of God given to us written down on the pages of this book... Are to us, a revelation of God that we respond to by faith, we obey t- by the power of the Spirit of God, and in that process, it's superintended by the providence of God, He shapes and He molds us into the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God. That is how Scripture works. Scripture defines for the Christian reality. It tells us what is right, and it tells us what is wrong. It tells us what is true, and it tells us what is false. It establishes for us a worldview. How we view everything is through the lens of Scripture. If it does not comport and agree with the Word of God, then it is wrong. If it agrees with the Word of God, then it is right. The standard for everything is Scripture. Scripture. It's how we know Him, it's where the Christian meets with Him, it's how we grow in Him. It is what we proclaim, the truth of God, as He's revealed Himself in the Bible. Now that being said, as the revelation of God, the God who is the God of creation, the God who rules and reigns over everything that He has made, the God who has revealed Himself in uh, the pages of Scripture, in Christ and in His people when they are faithful to the truth, it is inevitable then that the people of God who are faithful to the revelation of God and to the witness of God in Scripture are going to come into conflict with a world that hates that word, that rejects that God, that hates that Christ that does not love his righteousness does not delight in singing holy 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 but in fact despises that revelation of God. And so it's in, it's inevitable that at some point and in some way throughout the history of the church and to some degree of intensity that there is going to be conflict between the people of God and the world in which we live. God's kingdom in its ultimate sense is a kingdom of His reign over all things that He has made. His kingdom in a specific sense is that, that He is forming under the headship and the lordship of the Jesus Christ. But his kingdom expands to everything that he has made. But there is a rebellious kingdom within his kingdom, one that he allows to exist for a period of time. But because there is a conflict, because what God says is true, very often the world says is false, what God says is right, the world says is wrong, and so forth. There's a, there's a subtle seduction that comes in the life of God's people, and that is somehow to compromise the clear statement of what God has said in His Word so as to avoid either shame and the ridicule of the world, so as to avoid the persecution of the world and its hatred of those truths, to somehow win the favor of the world, not by being distinct and speaking boldly about who God is, but rather somehow fudging it a bit, So that the edge isn't so sharp in how it disagrees with our culture. That's always a seduction of the church. It's always a temptation to compromise on truth and holiness to be more acceptable to the culture to avoid persecution or simply to condone sin and to allow those within the church who name the name of Christ and who are identified with the visible church but are unconverted inside to somehow feel that they are uh, included among the promises of the gospel while showing no allegiance to Christ but rather are unconverted and unregenerate. And they exist within the visible church of Christ. They love their sin, and yet they name the name and they sing and so forth so this is what Christ is addressing. This is the situation at Pergamum. It's the situation the church has found herself in throughout her history. That she stands in conflict and bears the price, and she also bears those within herself who want to avoid that conflict by compromising on the truth of Christ. And so his message to the church at Pergamum, his message to us, is both an encouragement and it is a warning. It is an encouragement in that he who stands above all things, whose authority is ultimate, will judge all that try to harm his people. It is an encouragement that justice will be met in the end. It is a warning to say that the truth of God and the judgment of God is not only for the world in rejection to him, but also for his, those in his church who do not truly know him. As Peter said, judgment begins with the house of God. So with that in mind, let's begin our look at the church of Pergamum this morning. And we will look at it this morning, and then next week we'll take it a little bit closer. But let's begin just by reading with me verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name will be written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Well, as you know, that Christ gives his messages to these seven churches following a consistent pattern. He addresses the church. He gives his credentials as the risen Lord that fits the address that he's going to give to the church. He then commends the church for those acts of obedience and those acts of faithfulness. He then condemns the church for those areas of sin that he is addressing and that he is warning them about. And then he then encourages the church with covenant promises, those promises that come because of the covenant, those rewards of faith and trust in him. And so with that in mind, let's begin by noting the church that he addresses, the church in Pergamum. And it's helpful to know the context of the church in which the church was situated. So let's just briefly consider the, the culture and the context and the city and the place where they were. What was it that they had to endure the name Pergamum means citadel, due to its strategic military location, it was high up on a hill, really for most, uh, for all intents and purposes, largely inaccessible. It had a vantage point, and so its name means citadel. It is on a great hill, lumped over what is uh, a great plain, and it stands high uh, above it. It is an impressive location. Like Ephesus and Smyrna and other cities that are going to be addressed, it was a significant city within the empire of Rome. It, more than any other, however, was steeped in obedience to the Roman cult and pagan religion. But it was an impressive town. One described it this way. It was a sort of union of a pagan cathedral city, a universal town, and a royal residence. Just to give you some of the, the, the general data, the characteristic of it. It, as a significant Roman town, had great wealth. It wasn't as wealthy as the city of Ephesus was, but it was a significant city. It was one that had significant wealth. It had a great library of over 200,000 volumes, equal only to the library in Alexandria. It's credited with the development of parchment. Some of y'all will know what that means. It's writing on animal skins. Although it didn't develop it, it really just kind of popularized it. But it became known for that. That's even attached to the, the term pergamum, came to be the term parchment. It was home to a significant medical school, a theater of 10,000 seats. I don't know, were any of those pictures able to get up there? I think that's one or two. There it is. There it is, high up on the hill, a theater. I just might give you a visual here. That's a theater. sat about 10,000 people. It had a theater, it had baths, it had a gymnasium, and many other structures that would even be added after the death of John moving into uh, the 2nd century. Again, it stood as an impressive monument to Roman glory and a testimony to the religious culture that permeated the society. Most importantly, however, is, is its political culture and its political climate. It was rife with symbols of Roman authority and power. And the very tone, the very ethos, the very mood of the city was one of reverence for Rome and reverence for Caesar. The city itself has a history that goes back to the 4th century with high and low points, but it had a particular history among the Greeks. After the conquest of Alexander the Great, it came under Greek rule. It remained that way for quite a while. And during that time, it only grew in its significance as a city in that area, sort of a capital city in that area. However, the most significant point of this history came in 133 BC under a king named the III. And in this time, the power of Rome was increasing. The burgeoning power and presence of Rome throughout that region was only increasing. And so this king recognized that. So before his death, he essentially bequeathed all of his dominions, all of his lands and his territories to Rome. It came into willing and peaceful submission to the empire of Rome. And therefore, having already had the status of a significant Greek city, it became the most significant presence and representation of Rome in the East, in all of Asia Minor, and it held that position for many years, for centuries, actually. As a demonstration of a reward of its loyalty, in 29 AD, it was the first city, now other cities we mentioned in Ephesus and in Smyrna had some temple to the cultus of Rome, but... Pergamum holds the distinction of being the first in that area to build a temple to Augustus and to the goddess Roma, which established them as a chief uh, city that was committed to everything Roman. Uh, One described it this way, if Ephesus was the New York of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington, for there the Roman imperial power had its seat of government. It was basically, again, sort of the governing presence of Rome over all of that area in Asia Minor. Now, the important point of that is this its position and its commitment, its unique commitment and history with the Empire of Rome, made it lead or caused it to lead the way in the persecution of Christians in that area. As a matter of fact, we'll mention this later, but Antipas stands out because he was probably the first to suffer that kind of persecution of the state for naming the name of Christ. One said this, compared to all the surrounding cities, Caesar worship was the most intense here. In other cities, a Christian might be in danger on only one day a year when a pinch of incense had to be burned in worship of the emperor. In Pergamum, however, Christians were in danger every day of the year for the same reasons. So in other words, in some cities, they had special feasts, they had uh, special commemorative days and events in which it was required that people put incense to uh, Caesar, to Rome. However, in Pergamon, that was a daily event. It was a daily threat then. It wasn't merely an occasional threat. It was a constant threat to the Christians who lived there. And this is what was rising. This kind of opposition was rising and increasing even at the time that John was writing. Religiously, it was a typical polytheistic city and it housed many significant monuments and temples to a variety of deities and to some of the main deities of that area and then, of course, lesser deities and around and so forth. However, there are two particular temples that stood out. One was the great temple of the Greek god Zeus. It had been built to celebrate a great victory when it was under Greek rule against the Gauls or the Galatians. And it was a big painting that's still uh, there, a phrase, anyway, that was there at the bottom of this temple of Zeus. It stood as a monument to the greatness of the city. It was a huge temple, 40 feet high, highly visible, situated 800 feet above the base of the valley. I think there's a third picture, just so you can get an idea. I think Number three. Okay, so there it is. So that's a street down at the bottom and then you can see the theater right up there and then you see right up at the top up there was the Temple of Zeus. So it was very impressive. So as you came along that road, as you were coming into the city, you looked up and there was this massive temple. It was very visible, very impressive, very imposing on all who were there. But it stood out not only because of its structure and its location, but one noted that all day long it smoked with the smoke of sacrifices offered to Zeus. Just as a point of interest, it was discovered in the 1800s by German archaeologists and the altar there to Zeus was actually taken. And there is within Berlin an actual Pergamum museum where you can go and see uh, many artifacts and things dedicated. There it is. That's a reconstruction of the altar. Part of it was what was discovered, part of it uh, reconstructed there. So it was an impressive impressive temple. Secondly, however, they had a temple to a god by the name of Asclepius. I hope I got that right. It is the god of healing. It was both a temple and a school. And people traveled from all around the world to come to this temple, not only to worship, but to receive healing. And it was not only pagan in terms of its religious commitment, but there was actually a lot of great learning there and a lot of medical knowledge that went there too. We're feel, uh, familiar with uh, hip, hip, what was it? Hippocrates? Hi, hip, Hippocrates, right? That was the medical guy. I just blinked out on his name. Uh, Hippocrates, and uh, his medical prestige, there was another one, an ancient uh, medical person by the name of Galen. He was actually from Pergamum. He was a product of that uh, school that was there. Now, what's interesting about this temple, not only, again, of its impressive structure, but it was particularly associated with snakes and with serpents. And so there's coinage and other artifacts that point to uh, the god uh, wrapped around with a snake or snakes surrounding them, and it was a part of the worship uh, that was there. As a matter of fact, one notes the putting together of both the, the legitimate learning with the pagan ritual in this way. And how serpents played into it he said feeding a living serpent in the temple was the manner of practicing their worship so there were a bunch of non-poisonous snakes that were always sliding around there and in order to receive healing this is one of the things that went on the sick spent the night in the darkness of the temple where non-poisonous snakes were allowed to roam and if a person was touched by one of these snakes which was to be touched by the god himself he was cured of his illness And so can you imagine that? They went there in a dark room, snakes all around, non-poisonous, hoping that one would just slide across them in the night uh, to be healed. So there it was. There's also coinage uh, that bears the title of Asclepius, the Savior, the Savior. All of these things would have no doubt been a constant provocation to the Christians. However, the point is simply this by noting these things. The city was an environment and a culture both religiously and politically that the church was increasingly finding itself in conflict with and in this conflict was increasingly in danger of the threat of persecution and having to pay a price for their testimony of faith in Christ. And so it is in that context that he writes to them and he identifies himself secondly with his credentials. Look at verse second part of verse 12. He says... To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write: the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. He gives them an imagery of military strength. Now, we're familiar with the connection of the idea of a sword to the word of God. Ephesians four twelve: it is the sword, the, church, uh, the word of God is a living, and active, sharper than any two-edged sword able to cut between. Thoughts and intentions, the division and bone and marrow and so forth. It is the sword which is the offensive weapon and the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 17. Take up the sword of the spirit which is to take up the word of God to fight against the attacks and the errors of Satan. However, in those passages, while the imagery there is a connection, it uses a term for sword which speaks of a smaller sword, more of a personal combat kind of weapon. It also sometimes is used to speak of the power of death, so it's actually the term for sword, the smaller sword, in Romans thirteen four, where the, the government does not bear the sword for nothing. Here he uses another term for sword, though, and it speaks of this larger sword, and it was a broad sword, and it was two-edged, and it bore the imagery of the armies marching together into attack for battle. It was a broad sword that would not be wielded with so much skill, but just kind of swung broadly like that to take out as many people as possible. Again, it's an imagery of one who makes war against his enemies. And that's exactly the way that he meant it when he gave that same sight in the vision to John in chapter 1, verse 16. He says in this vision of John's vision of Christ that in his right hand he held seven stars. And here he adds this, and this that he doesn't repeat in chapter 2, but is a part of the imagery. He says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And there he makes explicit that connection. The sword and the word of God. The sword and the authority of Christ in what he speaks to the church. And that's the imagery here. It marks his authoritative word. His absolute authority. His absolute authority to stand as judge over all. Now the imagery of the double-edged sword then has a couple of functions here. One... In giving it, it is no doubt meant to stand in contrast to this judicial power of Roman governments, governors. There was then, and I think it's still used in legal language today, something called eus gladi. And ius gladi referred to the power or the right of the sword. In other words, it was the power of Roman authority, government Roman authority, that it had itself. And then it gave to certain provincial rulers or governors in order to uh, execute the sentence of death. They could put someone to death, and that was what it was. And so that was the power that was being used against the Christians, those who would not acknowledge the superior authority of the state, in that case Rome. And then they were, by this legal right, able to be put to death. And so this imagery then is no doubt meant to be at least a part of the contrast to that. That says, Rome uses its earthly power of the sword against the kingdom of Christ and his people. And yet Christ, who is Lord, stands over all earthly power. And he is the one who wields the true power of the sword, the true right of the sword. The one who holds death and Hades in his hand in the vision that God gave to John. And so they are realizing that they are suffering from this authority of earthly power. They stand under the one who has all power in heaven and earth. And the imagery of the sword here then has a twofold function. It is not merely against the political power of Rome, but it is also meant to be a warning to the church. It's a symbol of the authority of Christ and His word over all people, over all governments, over all rulers, over all nations. He's a warrior who will judge all rebels in His kingdom. But it also is a word to the church and a warning of His authoritative word that will cut out of His church those who reject His truth, who compromise with the world. Let's just consider this imagery. Christ, first of all, They would have latched on to this, and we should, is to say that Christ has authority to judge all the peoples. This is the imagery of the sword. The sword coming out of his mouth brings judgment ultimately to the kingdom of Antichrist. Now, interestingly, outside of the vision in chapter 1, verse 16, the mention here, he's going to use this term again in chapter 19. Let me just mention it to you. This is the great account of Christ after... The kingdom of Antichrist has run its course when he returns to execute judgment, to uphold righteousness and justice on the earth, to clear out out of his kingdom all rebels and all who stand in opposition to him. He uses this imagery. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Same term. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Verse 21. The rest who were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh is the imagery of him returning as king rightful king the one who comes in truth and righteousness and justice the one who has true ownership of all things and he comes as judge and that certainly is what is meant to be communicated here but let me ask a question this is the question that comes to my mind in what way does that imagery actually in what way does a sword out of his mouth is that meant to actually be a means of judgment or an instrument of judgment against his people what's the connection between the imagery and the reality of that imagery well in this way when he speaks to confront sin when he speaks to call to repentance When he speaks to warn against error, when he speaks to rebuke the wayward, the sword does at least two things. His word, pictured here as a sword, does at least two things. It acts as a witness against all who oppose him, and it makes certain the consequences of those who oppose him. It acts as a witness, and it acts as a certain declaration of the consequences of those who oppose his word. Let me just illustrate this very quickly. First of all, it is a witness. It is a witness. The word of God acts as a witness. The, the declarations of God's power, the declarations of God's rule, the declarations of God's promises of judgment act as a witness against all people and all men. In John 12, 48, Jesus said this when he's in conflict with the leaders there who were hearing his word, the crowds who were hearing his word, but they were not responding to his word and faith. He says this. John 12, 48. Just listen. He who rejects me and does not receive my saying has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Why will it judge him? Because it will stand as a witness. It will stand as a witness against all of those who heard and chose disbelief, chose rebellion, who chose disobedience rather than obedience and the obedience of faith. The word they refuse to believe will stand against them as irrefutable evidence of their rebellion, and it will act as evidence for their judgment. Which, just as a footnote here, is a great contrast between those who are actually dying for the testimony of Christ Because in their death of the testimony of Christ, as Antipas is held up and others that we've looked at, they are bearing witness themselves to the truth of Christ, to the value of the kingdom, to the reality of the gospel, and indeed to their acquittal before the judgment seat of God in Christ, while those who persecute them and put them to death are actually bearing witness to their rebellion. And God's revelation of that is what will stand against them. And in that sense, the word will act as a sword against them. But most poignantly, he's emphasizing here the consequence of his word, the certainty of the word of judgment that will come. And for example, it is to say that when God makes a declaration of judgment, he will certainly carry it out. His word, in that sense, will not return void. And actually, there's a connection here. We mentioned it briefly in connection with Revelation one sixteen, let me mention again uh, two passages in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter eleven, as you're well familiar with, probably it is a it is an anticipation of this ministry of the branch of Jesse, or the root of Jesse. This one who's going to come forth, this messianic ministry, this one who will be marked particularly by the presence of the Spirit of God in him, the righteousness of his life, and so forth. And he says this in verse 4, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then he says this, And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. In other words, this Messiah who come is going to speak under the authority of God. He's going to speak with the absolute truthfulness of God, with the power of God, with the fidelity of God. And what he says will indeed come to pass. It will, for those who are the afflicted of the earth, for those who are the outcasts of the earth because of their identification with the God of the earth, it will bring to them salvation. It will meet for them the justice that their hearts long for. But for those who are outside, it is a rod, it is a weapon, and it will certainly bring about consequences. All of His word will stand as a witness against those who reject Him and, in fact... It will accomplish their judgment. One other passage. Isaiah 49, chapter 2, verse 2. He has made my mouth. This is, again, a messianic passage. Looking forward. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Effective. When he speaks, it accomplishes what he intends it to speak. When he speaks, it is light that exposes everything that it is intended to expose. One comments, and says this, It is clear that the authority of the word of this ruler is fully identified with the execution of his will. When he speaks, he will accomplish it. His will is absolute. It is unbreakable. He speaks no idle word and nothing he speaks will fail. It is the common refrain of the prophets, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. He comes, speaks with all authority. Now this is a word of encouragement, of course, to them, to realize that He is the one who holds the true sword. He is the one who holds the true seat of government and of power over all of the nations. Not Rome, not Pergamum, not any other city, but of Christ. He holds that power, and we yield to Him. But... There is, a, there is a kind of tension here, too, that this is meant to... I just want to note here. There's a kind of encouragement. And the encouragement is this, is that we know that and we hold on to that by faith, but the reality is, is that this judgment is delayed. This judgment is yet to come. and is not here. And sometimes God's people can feel the tension. And no doubt this is a part of what led to the compromise that we'll look at next week of some of the church to... The culture to false teaching because it wasn't yet here and it can seem as though the power of the state is so strong is so mighty who indeed can confront the power of rome the empire that stood over all of the world you know some feel that tension some in our culture in our day feel that tension this this sort of unthinking Fear of what's going to come to us when our leaders decide to oppose us more openly. What's going to come and what is going to come of the church when she is rejected and she is politically attacked. And some worry about that. Psalm 10 says this, speaking of the righteous, for some who would be worried about these things. He says this in verse 4. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts, there is no God. And his ways prosper at all times. But he says, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for his adversaries, he snorts at them, speaking of the wicked. And he says, the wicked does, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. And that kind of tension and waiting can cause a anxiety sometimes in the people of God. A fear. Listen to the way that the psalmist in Psalm 94 puts it, verse 3. He says, well actually beginning in verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words arrogantly. And all who do wickedness vaunt themselves. And they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. The psalmist says, does the Lord not see... Nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. In other words, where are you, O Lord? Why do you let your people suffer as they do? Why do you stand by and watch as those who are wicked pour out their wrath arrogantly and haughtily on your people and they disregard you and they disregard your truth? That's, that happens in the heart of God's people. Matter of fact, we see that even in Revelation in verse six, chapter 6, verse 10. Looking at the martyrs who were the victims of this sword on the earth, it says, they said this before the throne, verse 9, And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath it the altar of the souls who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. God holds the sword. God has ultimate judgment. Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. He is building his church in the gates of Hades and the gates of Rome and the gates of the United States and the gates of North Korea and the gates of Iran and so on and so forth will not prevail against his building his church. But the building of the church requires that the church be willing to die and that some among be willing to submit themselves to the authority of this sword for a period. But he reminds them, Him who has a sword, a double-edged sword, a sword of war, a sword of authority, the sword of his word, that he is the one who stands in ultimate control and will bring about judgment in his own time. That's the first idea. There's a second part of this too, and it is directed towards the church. Note, however, in verse 12, who is he speaking to? He's not speaking to the city of Pergamum at large. He's not, he's not going out and saying, to the city of Pergamum, I say. And he's saying to the church at Pergamum. To those who name my name, to those who are identified with me, to those who make a profession of faith in me, I'm speaking to you, he says. I am the one speaking to you who has the sharp, two-edged sword, the sword, the picture of war and of justice and of authority coming out of my mouth. He's speaking to the church. He's warning those as well who will distort his name. As a matter of fact, look down at verse 16. After addressing the false teachers who were there that the church was tolerating, that was putting up with, both the error of their doctrine and the sin in their lives, he says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you, the church at Pergamum, quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. God is absolutely concerned with the glory of his name among his people. He's concerned about the testimony of the church of his name. And he will indeed uphold the glory of his own name. I mentioned it to you earlier, but Peter captured the same idea when he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he says it later in that context, if it begins with the household of God, what is going to be with the rest of the world? What is going to be with the rest of those who reject his truth? So strong is the statement that one sees it as the very key to the passage, saying this, Christ standing over the church as a threatening judge because of the church's sin is the thought pervading the entire epistle to Pergamum. I could capture one aspect of this as well. And again, we will come back to this more next week. But the imagery of the two-edged sword here is a reminder to the church that the church stands under the word and not over the word. stands under the word of God. Stands under the lordship of Christ as we stand under the revelation of Christ that he has given to us. It is the word of God that directs everything about the church. Our identity, our life, our commitments, our hope. Everything is bound to the word of God. And the faithfulness of the church and the love of the church for Christ her Lord is directly related to her attitude towards scripture. We've said that before. we're saying again. One said this since the bible is the word of our lord i think this is there since the bible is the word of our lord and maker it rightly commands our submission and it is morally wrong for us to disbelieve or disobey anything it says now just pause there what is immoral in the sight of god to disbelieve his word that's immoral what is an offense in the sight of god to disbelieve his word It has inherent authority, the author goes on to say. Whether or not this authority is acknowledged or robbed by a human king, because it is the Word of God. That is our basic understanding of canon and of inspiration. The Word of God has authority because it is the Word of God. It does not have authority because of the church. It does not have authority because any human being recognizes it. It has authority because it is given to us by God. Though all the world reject the Word of God, God will still be found true, Romans 3, 5. And so it has an inherent authority because it is the Word of God. And that is the authority that the church stands under and that eventually all of the world will be made to... Address and stand under. And that's why he brings it here and says, That's unacceptable then for my church to allow this kind of sin, this kind of false teaching, this kind of teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and any other thing that does not conform to the truth. It's not tolerable. It won't be allowed. I'm going to come not merely against the nations, but against my own people with. Judgment if there is not repentance. It is, again, a reflection of our attitude toward God. One said this. And again, I think this is up here. To subvert the Bible as God's direct word is to destroy our relationship with God. Indeed, it is an assault on God himself. Since God is as good as his word, God rules over us through his word. And that is the great... Offense and the great danger of the false teachers that he is ultimately addressing here as well. It's not merely a matter of error in some small details, it is a matter of salvation. It is a matter of severing God's people's relationship and connection with their Savior through the Word. To distort that is to destroy everything, it is to destroy the foundations. With that said, let's note thirdly then the commendation of Christ. So the church is to hold fast, to trust surely and then certainly certainly in the timing of God, in the justice of God, who will ultimately wield justice and execute it on the earth in his own time. It is a warning to the church of him who speaks with a double-edged sword to say the judgment is not merely for the word, but even those among my people who don't conform and submit to my word as Lord of heaven and earth. But I do acknowledge this. Some of you are faithful. Some of you are faithful, and I commend you for that. And so look at verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. Again, speaking here of that intimate knowledge of God with His people. He is not a Christ who is distant. He is not a Christ who is unconcerned about the suffering and the trials of His people. He knows where they are. He knows what they are experiencing. He cares, and He is present among them. Again, He is walking among His churches. He says, I know where you dwell. And look at what he says. Where Satan's throne is. He acknowledges the difficulty of their circumstances. He acknowledges the spiritual oppression that they are having to endure. He says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. And look at the end of the verse, where Satan dwells. And it speaks of a permanent residence, an ongoing residence. A kind of place where his presence is uniquely manifest. Now, what is he referring to here as the throne of Satan? What does he mean by that? Well, there's a few options. The ones that are usually given are that it refers to the temple of Zeus because of its paganism and its, its uh, visibility when you walk into the city, as you saw. It could be referring to the, the temple that is to Asclepius, the god of healing, because of the imagery of the serpent and all of that kind of stuff. Some say it is, could be referring to Pergamum as a whole, as a city, because of its opposition and because of its unique opposition to the message of Christ. Or it could be referring to the temple of Augustus, that temple that was built to the cultists of Rome, the imperial cult that demanded worship. And all of them are possible. However, there was nothing unique in terms of pagan worship about uh, Pergamum than there was any of the other churches or many of the other cultures around there. In all likelihood, the throne of Satan refers to the the temple worship of Augustus, to that temple worship, to the cultists of Rome, because it was, in fact, that was the very point where the persecution came. And in that sense, it was... anticipation not only a persecution that would come to the church throughout her history but the anticipation of the persecution that would come to the people of god during the rise of the antichrist in revelation 13 we'll get there It was the throne of Satan because it was this satanically controlled, spiritually blind means within the human realm of Satan executing his vengeance and his anger and his wrath against Christ by putting his people to death and by killing them. And the reality is, as noted before with Antipas, that he was probably likely the first to suffer this kind of authority and so that's why he bears special mention. He says, I know what you're having to face. I know it's a very dark culture. I know everywhere you turn, you see rebellion against my name. You see wickedness. You see spiritual darkness. I mean, we can relate to that in some ways. We don't have temples, but do we? We have abortion centers. We have media and every institution within our culture that more and more is calling light darkness and darkness light that is anticipating or that is uh, against the message and the truth of Christ and of righteousness. And so it is here. They, they, they were undergoing this kind of suffering, this kind of difficulty, this kind of conflict. And he's saying, I know where it is, and I know it's dark. I know it's very dark where you are. And I know there's, there's fear where you are because of the cost that is coming to you. I know it's where Satan's power is. Throne speaks of power and authority and governance. And it says in a particular way, Satan has that hold on the place where you are. I know that. But know that my throne is greater. My power is greater. And I commend those who hold fast my name, he says. Secondly, I know you. I know where you dwell. I know the darkness of the culture that you live in. I know what you have to endure. That the cost of being faithful to my name is going to increase. And that's essentially what the whole spiritual battle is, isn't it? It's a, it's a battle between two thrones. Two thrones. There's the throne of Satan. There is the throne of God and the throne of Christ. Just by way of mention in Revelation 4 and the vision right after the message to the churches. He says, I looked, behold, behold, a door opened in heaven. And he heard a voice coming to him. Come up here and I'll show you what will take place. And he talks about immediately I was in the spirit. And behold a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne. The angels are gathered around the throne. The church is gathered around the throne. The redeemed are gathered around the throne. It is the throne of God who is the ultimate reality. It is the throne of God on which the Father and Christ sit. In Revelation 22 where the the river is flowing out. And the tree of life is on either side of it. It is the throne of God in which he will be the constant source of all eternity, a blessing to his people. But right now, you live in a place where the throne of Satan is. And there's going to be then conflict. Let me just briefly mention some of the ways that this connects with them and us. Politically, this comes when the state demands absolute allegiance. Remember, the real issue of persecution against the church is always this thing. in in its variety of forms it's an issue of authority it always comes down to an issue of authority who rules this is why understanding god as creator is everything it's god's world he made it he rules it he runs it he tells us the way things are it's an issue of authority if persecution comes politically it is because the state demands absolute allegiance to its own power structures and if you go outside of that then you must suffer the wrath of the state. It is totalitarianism in all of its different forms. The church certainly it wasn't unique to Pergamum. It's unique to the church. It's it's part of the church throughout our history, even today, right? In those nations and states that demand absolute authority. In communist nations, that is the real evil of communism besides it's seductive for even some within the church. Ideology. It is ultimately a political system that demands absolute allegiance to the state. The state is God. It's Marxism. It can come religiously as well to Christ, God's people. It can come through the state, through the, absolute, the, the demand of absolute obedience. It can come religiously for those who claim some kind of allegiance to God, even allegiance to Christ, while denying His authority in Scripture. One can easily think of Islam who kills Christians in the service of God, and for that matter, other Muslims. It can come in the form of the medieval church, who was the very representation of Christ on the earth, the very interpreter of His word among the earth, the very, the very divine presence of God on the earth that killed you if you had Scripture in your hand and you could read it. That was behind the Inquisition. Because it had imbibed and had drunk deeply from the sense of earthly power, so that in the name of Christ it killed Christ over and over again in the persecution of his people. It can come in the name of religion. You can imagine if it came to it, if things go on, how many true Christians might be persecuted by those who name the name of Christ in our own day. It came from the Jews. Who claim they were serving God and yet the very initial persecution against the church was from the Jews they put them to death remember Paul that was his whole ministry before so this persecution can come not just from pagan cultures it can come from those who claim to be serving God who claim even to be serving Christ and accomplishing his purposes in the world but they deny his authority in Scripture they deny the truth they do not submit to his word they do not submit to his headship as Lord It can come culturally. And this is where there is pressure to conform to cultural norms and ideas that conflict with Scripture. Try going into any public square. Is Basil here? I used his word. Men's will know what that means. Try going into any public square and speak the truth of God's word about feminism. And the way that God designed gender for human flourishing and see what kind of ridicule you get even from the people of God and from the culture. Try going to anywhere in the public square in the church and talk about gender. Talk about the evil of abortion. And you will receive, in many cases, wrath and conflict and hostility. And we can consider this in this way as well. When a people continues as a nation in their rejection of God as creator, and all that that implies in Genesis 1 and 2, then you have the situation of Romans 1. We're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, professing to be wise, they become fools, darkened in their understanding, unable to think correctly, depraved of mind, foolish in their rationale, misusing logic and all of God's gifts to His people to pursue wickedness. And so what does God do? He gives them over You want to fulfill your desires, so I'll give you over to every kind of perversion. Men will be with men and women will be with women. Or we can come to our day where we don't even say there's man and woman. And you can do whatever you want. And God says, "We'll do whatever you want. There you go. But there's a price to pay because I have the sword. But he gives them over. So we could understand then if God gives the culture over, then that means in reality... That the throne of Satan and the rule of Satan and the influence of Satan is more and more the norm within the culture of that people given over. That means the domain of darkness increases in strength. That means the ruler of this world is ruling with more power. And that means then that it's inevitable that the conflict between the truth and God's people, light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness, is only going to get worse. Because there's the conflict, Christ's authority or human authority... That's always the issue. And in relation to his message to Pergamum and to the church here, it is to say it's always an issue of this, the book, the Bible. That's always the issue. It's always going to be the issue. It has been since the Garden, and it will be till the destruction of the kingdom of Antichrist. Christ exercises his lordship in his word. That's how we express our faith in him, our love to him, and the more we do that, then the more it's going to bring us into conflict. And he says here, as he holds up an example of Antipas, and he calls him my witness, my faithful one, and I'll just have to briefly mention this. My witness and my faithful one. This is really endearing. What does he mean by he did not deny my faith and my witness? Well, he could be talking there about just the body of truth, doctrinal truth, those truths revealed about him. And that certainly is included. There, no doubt, is a part of it. But he seems to be emphasizing here even more, he did not deny me personally the one in whom he had trusted. It was his walk with him, it was his love for Christ that he would not deny. And yes, that includes everything revealed about him. But his name here is that personal name, that one in whom I've come to trust. Interestingly, Polycarp, if you'll remember, the one who was persecuted in Smyrna, a martyr there. He famously said when they, when they came to take him from the residence where he was staying before he was taken to the arena... When they came to get him, he had asked them if he could have some time to pray and all of that. And in this conversation, in this dialogue, and, and you remember, they kept appealing for him to, to just deny the faith, have pity on your old age. Why would you endure this? And he famously said this, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That was Polycarp. And that that clearly here was the commended faith of Antipas as well. He didn't deny me. He held on to the faith. And I was faithful to him. No doubt Christ was as he sustained him in whatever he had to endure. Well, we'll pick it up there from next week and look at where they compromised. But as we come to the table, let us remember this, the encouragement. The encouragement is, is that the Christ, whose body is represented not only among us, but in these elements, is the Christ who wields the true power of this Word, who truly reigns. It is the Christ that we are feeding on by faith, as it were, and saying we have yielded to him, we have trusted in him, we have given him our lives. And he upholds us by his righteous and omnipotent hand. We don't uphold ourselves. We fail, we fall, we stumble, but we're never hurled headlong because of his faithfulness. Because of the perfectness, perfect perfection of his redemption, of his salvation, of his faithfulness to his word. He will bring us home. And we're acknowledging that, our absolute dependence. As a matter of fact, the whole effort of, one said, I'm paraphrasing it, uh, the whole effort, it seems, of God, once we're saved, is to show us our weakness so that we'll depend more on Him. And it is to us the courage and challengement of hope that says, this table reminds us not only of Him who died for us, not only of Him who appears in the presence of God for us right now, but Him who is returning for us in this church to bring us home to bring us to himself he says I desire that where I am that my people are there as well because I love them with an everlasting love and with that let's pray and then go to the table Father thank you for the your word thank you for your promises and your encouragement how we need them but how we need you Holy Spirit to to take these truths and to, to bind them to our heart and to our conscience to renew our mind to shape our affections to strengthen and deepen our hope in your word. And we pray that even now, as we come together at the table, that you would do these things. In your name, Jesus.